This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We have a massive show for you today, and uh, I say that every week, but some weeks it's actually true. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. She's a bit feral today. She's had a tough week. Oh, it's been a big week for me, <laughs> but, uh, but here we are to talk about science, and there's nothing I love more on a Sunday morning than spotlighting some of the great research that's happening here in Melbourne. Well said. Chris Gaping. Hi. <laughs> Beat hi. that. There's nothing I like better on a Sunday morning than sleeping in, but this is a close uh, second. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. We have Liv doing our Twitter feed. Uh, she rushed in a few moments ago. There's a little bit of a construction site out the front of the studio at the moment, if you haven't noticed it. In fact, it seems to be there every second Sunday um, doing some tram work. I'm pretty so sure it's be... performance art. Oh, is that what it is? Very, very high budget. Well, they're doing it really well then they because are. they actually look like construction people. But if you're on the social medias, you can follow us on Twitter at, at Einstein underscore a go-go. A go-go. Yes, indeed. And you'll see some great stuff there. Um, not from me, from, uh, from, <laughs> from, 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 from the listeners. <laughs> from the listeners, indeed. So tweet in your questions if you have any during the show. Oh, dear. That, that's Good a, call. No, what? it's an excellent idea. You reckon? We, we don't have to answer them, do we? Well, I like think we that's put, the inference. It's not yeah. like we put them oh. live on, on the bottom of the screen. So no, that's okay. right. <laughs> yeah, it's not Q and A. Um, what's the A stamp? No. Uh, anyway, anyway, moving on with some science. Dr. Crystal, what has floated your boat this week? Well, as you might know, I've been following the MERS outbreak. MERS is Middle Eastern mm. Respiratory Syndrome, and uh, uh, named such because it arose in Saudi Arabia and um, where it has led to the deaths of about 400 people. Mm. But curiously, there's been a very large outbreak and a continuing ongoing outbreak in South Korea. And um, and and MERS is a coronavirus. It's the same kind of virus as SARS, but they're not they're not the same virus, but they're related. And it really raises this question of how do you develop new therapies for these new emerging infectious diseases? We've never seen this virus before. How does one even start going about studying it? And it, it really brings me back to one of my favourite movies, Contagion. And there's this great line in Contagion that says, um, it's a paraphrasing, but basically it's like, unless you can grow it and a lot of it, then you're not going to be able to find a cure for it. Right. You actually have to have a, a physical way of studying it. Mm. And so some, some research was um, published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which provides a glimmer of hope around how we might go about studying MERS. It's um, from researchers from the University of Maryland in the US who teamed up with a biotech company, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, to develop some new tools um, to study MERS. And they, they made, a, because the thing is, um, a lot of the ways in which we study diseases is we use mice models. Um, because so, mice, you know, you can um, you can study the disease, and you, because you're not allowed to experiment directly on humans, as it turns out. And so, um, what a shame! And so, um, speaking for the mice community, what a shame! Yes, but uh, but human uh, MERS doesn't infect mice right. because the virus um, uh, to get inside cells binds specifically to a human protein that's present on the surface of lung cells. And so, they engineered these mice to instead of expressing the mouse protein, they expressed the human protein so that mm. the, the MERS virus could actually infect oh, them cool. and so then you've got a model to which to study it so so that's the first thing that they did was they made a new tool to be able to study MERS virus in a living system because if you study something in a dish it doesn't always translate into a living system so that's why they've uh, created this new model and then they use this model to find two new human uh, human antibodies that can neutralize the virus so antibodies are the proteins made by your b cells in your immune system and they're one of the best ways of neutralizing and, and attacking viruses and so 
using this mouse model, they then verified that these two new antibody leads that they have can actually um, neutralise the virus in these new mouse systems. And, it, and, and um, yeah. it's a, just a great story in terms of the way in which um, researchers and, and companies can come together to find, uh, to, to accelerate discovery and also translation into actual clinical tools. So this is an early stage, but the fact that they're human antibodies that are working in this system means that they should translate into clinical studies quite well. So stay tuned. Hopefully there'll be some clinical trials for MERS therapies coming along the pipeline. Stuff. Yeah, because it's certainly something that, although the overall number of cases is low, these things start that way. And then they get out of hand very quickly. Yeah, it's, the, the the death rate is around 40%. That's high. And there's no specific therapies for MERS. At mm. the moment, you can only kind of just uh, support the patient. Um, there's no actual therapeutic intervention. So this is the first glimmer of hope that there are actually things in the pipeline that are effective that could actually now be tested in people. Mm. They, I, I don't know anything about viruses. You know, as our listeners will attest. But um, 40% must be close to sort of an optimum value where, you know, you kill just enough people, but there's enough going on to pass it around you know like like i mean when you look at ebola you know it kills everyone basically you know almost everyone and so it doesn't tend to spread that well does it but but not always and that's the thing is that everyone says oh ebola just burns itself out but as we've just seen Mm. recently played out in west africa that wasn't the case and Mm. so i think that i think you have to be quite careful around looking at those numbers but um like i prefaced that statement with saying nothing about viruses (laughs) But, uh, but the fact that um that the mers virus outbreak in south korea is ongoing Mm. Um, and that the that we still don't really understand a lot about how it's transmitted from person to person either. I think, you know, really does uh, create a, a need for more research in this area. And I think that some of these tools that are being developed are going to help us answer these questions um, quickly. Mm, sounds good. Chris KP? I uh, noticed an article in Science this week which appealed to me for a, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, but let me just firstly remind you uh, of an important thing that I, I suspect that you take for granted, and that is that most animal tales are cylindrical. Oh, I had to, taken that for granted. Hadn't you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, you mean me... not triangular and not square. Correct. M- many of them are not triangular <laughs> or square. <laughs> However, seahorse tails are in fact square, square. prisms. Yes, they are. Um, and they curl forward in a circle, but the actual pieces of them, are, they have edges, they have corners, which is odd. Um, and a bunch of, bunch of scientists from a bunch of universities uh, in Belgium and across the US... Uh, decided to study this. Now, of course, the cool thing about uh, about studying things in the modern world, as we've just touched on, is the fact that you don't actually necessarily have to have the actual real thing, and usually you can't have the actual real thing. Now, you can get a seahorse if you want, but the kinds of tests they were interested in were physical tests. So you don't really want to get a seahorse tail and, you know, squash it and twist it and do horrible things to it while it's on a seahorse. But you don't need to do that because they can 3D print them. So what they did is they basically 3D printed uh, a series of fake seahorse tails, some which were like real ones, like the square prism connected one, and others which were cylindrical like you would expect pretty much any other animal to have. What did they 3D print them out of? It, out of okay, out of plastic. And right. this is the interesting point. So what this, the, the big difference between the two models, the big weakness, if you like, is that one is a living seahorse tail and the other is bits of plastic. So there's a limit to what you can find out, and that's an extremely important point, actually, and it comes up in the, uh, in the paper as well to some extent. Um, it's, there's, a, there's a limit, I guess, in the confidence you can have. With some things you sort of go, yeah, totally makes sense to me because it doesn't matter. In others you go, no, that's not a living seahorse tail, so I'm going to take that with, you know, not a grain of salt, but I'm going to, I'm going to weigh it up in my head. What they found um, was that the actual, the, the, the four, the, the, the square prism model that the seahorse tail has is in fact uh, about up to four times stronger than a cylindrical one. 
Um, and that's not to do with the plastic. That's to do with the way it's put together. So that's the thing you can put some confidence in. It's actually a stronger-shaped system, which surprised me, actually, what with the whole circular spreading of loads idea thing. But then again, my understanding of uh, physics is not unlike Dr Shane's understanding of viruses. They're <laughs> so bad. It's so, pretty ordinary. So if a square yes. tail is stronger, yeah. why is it not more common? Um, interesting question, and I don't know the answer to that. They, the, the, one of the conclusions, if you can call it that, that they drew from the study was that um, this may, in fact, have a really interesting evolutionary pathway to study. Now that we've found this, we go, so why hasn't that happened? I wonder if it mightn't be something that's more to do with being in an aquatic environment. That well, I was, I was just thinking space. there. I mean, a, a, a tail, in the case of a seahorse, is partially used for propulsion. Yes. Whereas in most cases, it's either used for balance or for removing well, know, flies or other things. It, it's not necessarily a propulsion yeah. mechanism on the land. So the well, the, I think the square, the, you know, the, the geometry of it is very different on the. I basis. think yeah, I think the propulsion part of it makes it not unique, but makes it much. It makes it different. Mm. But also, you've got to look at at, at, uh, at what tails do. You're quite right. And the, the nearest comparison uh, in terms of terrestrial animals is anyone that thinks it's got a prehensile tail. Yep. And they are usually cylindrical as well. But that's the other cool thing. They also found that with a square. Uh, tail, what you can do is you actually get a better grip control mm. on surfaces too. So then you think, well, hang on, how come monkeys haven't evolved square tails? Mm. Um, and I suspect there's going to be a whole lot of interesting science that comes out of the, the surface of the tail and how that interacts and the fact that it's soft tissue and hard tissue combined, etc. But yeah, yeah 3D printing, which, by the way, prompts a question. Um, 3D printing, when are we going to stop saying 3D? And just saying real printing. Just printing, because when you print out, <laughs> when you print out a seahorse yeah. tail, it's obviously yeah, yeah. not on a piece of paper, yeah. right? So we should be saying 2D printing now and just saying printing and 2D printing. Yeah, maybe that sounds yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, anyway. you heard it first here, folks. <laughs> um, well, the other, the other animal that's got a, um, a square tail for propulsion in water of yes. crocodiles and alligators. Good point. Very you know, good point. it's very yes. squarely oriented yeah. because it's either left, right, or up, down. Yes. And so if you only need those two motions, then the construction of it is such that you only get those two motions, and that's probably an advantage because you go straight. You get, you get, it's guaranteed. Yes, yeah. It's whereas reliable. you know, a kangaroo is not using its tail for propulsion; it's using it well, partly sometimes, but but mainly for balance. balance. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and many terrestrial animals have it for balance, whereas reptiles and fish, or even fish things like sharks. Too, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you look at a shark's, um, you know, the fin at the back. What's that called? The back fin. <laughs> the back fin. <laughs> It's tail. Um, no, but every fish's tail, of course, is actually a flat structure. It's yes. not a round structure. So, there, you know, there's some geometry issues That's there, I think, are, to do with propulsion. I think that combination might, in fact, be the secret. These guys have done nothing. <laughs> We've worked it out, Chris KP, on air. Um, now, I just thought I would mention um, some work that's uh, come out in the, you know, over, over quite a few years, actually, but some recent stuff that's come out with regards to chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but um, chronic fatigue syndrome is one of those areas where, I mean, people listening to the show may remember the other name for this, which was yuppie flu. Do you remember that? And people used to call this yuppie flu. It was all in the head. In fact, m- most most of the um, responses to this, the treatments, were psychiatric in nature. And in some cases, that has helped some people, I think. But the reality is the the types of um, symptoms people have with chronic fatigue are severe and they are, you know, they're not made up. I mean, there's the fatigue, the, the tiredness, obvious, which is, isn't, you know, oh, had a late one last night, I feel a bit exhausted today. It's the continual non-stop exhaustion. But there's also things like sore throat, headaches, you know, pains in the muscles and joints. There's a lot of, you know, sort of general, you know, crappiness that goes with chronic fatigue. And it's not something that people get by very quickly. Now, um, 
there's been a recent push just in February, actually, from the US Institute of Medicine to sort of break away from this this chronic fatigue title because they feel that you know a lot of a lot of researchers are steering clear of it because they think it's made up. You know, and so there is there hasn't been as much interest in it as there there is in other ailments. And so they, they thought of calling it systematic exertion intolerance disease. Apparently this has not caught on. <laughs> it's not very catchy. Um, no surprise there. Um, and, of course, it, there was a paper in 2009 in Science that came out which linked um, CFS, or you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, with a particular mouse virus. But that paper has since been retracted as being not right. And so this is one of those you know illnesses that actually has gone from bad to worse in terms of the research effort that's been quite problematic. However, just recently, um, some researchers in Norway have been looking at a particular drug that's used to knock out white blood cells in people who have lymphoma and other other cancers, and also in rheumatoid arthritis. And they've found that in and this, you know, this number, for those of you who understand efficacy in, in trials, two-thirds of the people who've taken this, who've, experienced, who've had um, chronic fatigue syndrome, have actually um, essentially had all of their symptoms go into complete remission. So this is not an insignificant finding. And it also says that there's some underlying biology there that we don't understand that is real, folks, you know, not made up, but real, that these drugs that are affecting parts of the immune system are actually having a beneficial effect on for these patients. Mm. So it's it's early stage. Um, there's there's a whole lot of you know ideas around what CFS is uh, you know initially came from, and I think some of the early ideas were around Epstein Barr as as one of the the precursors to it. But you know that was never sort of locked in either. But the fact that there might be a potential treatment down the track for this is actually really good because this is one of these areas where there's just been. A, a relatively minor amount of input, I think, into into the studies relative to other illnesses because because of the way it started and you know this whole idea that it was just people you know feeling sorry for themselves and clearly not true. So some good news there, yeah. I think, um, and we'll see see how that progresses. Yeah, but, it really um, does point to the fact that it's um but could have an autoimmunity kind of um yeah origin. And, and I mean, you know. Whether there's some 8,000 rare genetic diseases yes. running around, there's umpteen dozen autoimmune diseases running around that we, we haven't cured. We you can barely identify half of them. So the idea that there could be another one that's causing this or, or some other condition causing this is not really out of the realms of imagination. And it's quite a pity that this particular condition has had such a negative flavour attached to it. That being said... Uh, Sorry, U.S. Institute of Medicine, but systematic exertion intolerance disease probably won't catch Not on catchy. anytime soon. Uh, we better play some music, folks. We've got a massive lineup of guests today. Uh, we're going to start off talking about some um, some of the superbugs that we find in our hospitals. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Three Triple R. This is Einstein Go Go. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. We have in the studio now Professor Dick Strugnell. He's a microbiologist from the University of Melbourne and the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Dick. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Shane. We're all buddies, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to go rough on you. Um, <laughs> now, look, there's some amazing news that came out uh, over the last week about scientists decoding the genome of one of these superbugs. 
Clipsiella pneumonia, is that how you say it? Pretty close. Pretty close, close enough. Um, tell us a bit first about superbugs, because we hear we hear in the sort of commercial media about these these things in hospitals, and I always have these image of these man-sized bugs roaming the halls of our public hospital system, but I mean, what, what constitutes one of these super-resistant bugs? I mean, what, what criteria does a bug have to have, or a bacteria have to have, to meet, meet that condition? I think the first point is they have to be medically important, that is, they have to cause disease in humans mm. um, they tend to be bacteria that uh, have evolved to live in hospital environments reasonably efficiently and that can include in patients that are immunocompromised whose immune systems yep. been disabled by therapy or because they've got a co-infection or some other for some other reason so these bugs are, are, are more common in hospitals and hospital environments of course are subject to very heavy antibiotic pressure And so the bacteria that can persist in these environments tend to, over a reasonably short period of time, acquire new resistances. And then once they become highly resistant, they act as as a sink, they collect all these resistances up and then spread them to other bacteria. Hmm. And so the organism that was in the news this week and the week before, KPC, is a sink for antibiotic resistance. It's well recognised overseas as an organism that will acquire multiple resistance and then transfer them to other bacteria. Right. Now, when we talk about these these particular bacteria in the hospitals, I mean, do they survive in the hospitals outside of patients or are they just, you know, person-to-person contact, so patient to surgeon to patient? How does that work? I think that's a bit of an unknown. I think Mm -hmm. everyone assumes that they probably do survive outside the patient. They have often developed uh, structural traits that make them slightly more resistant to cleaning and, you know, simple removal so that they exist on surfaces. They probably exist on floors, And, you know, as patients move around hospitals, as Mm. visitors come in and out of hospitals, as staff move around, these bacteria are then transmitted from ward to ward, room to room, patient to patient. Hmm. And and once a patient has these particular bacteria, I mean, what does it do to them? I think a lot depends then on how immunocompromised they are. Mm -hmm. So the organism that we work on, the one that was in the news, KPC, Klebsiella pneumoniae, That bacterium typically only affects, and I say typically because in parts of Asia it does cause very serious invasive disease as a primary pathogen, but in hospitals in Australia it tends to be what's called a nosocomial pathogen, a pathogen you acquire only once you go into hospital. Mm -hmm. But from there, if you're in hospital for any length of time, if you're in an intensive care unit or you're a frequent hospital visitor, that bacterium can cause pneumonia, can cause urinary tract infections, it can get into your blood and cause a septicemia. I, I was looking at the, um, about, uh, about the detection rates and they're saying that you know, they've identified 57 people from Victorian hospitals who are carriers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're, um, they have an infectious active mm-hmm. disease. Is that the case? You can be a carrier but not um, have uh, a disease-causing condition? That's absolutely true, Crystal. I mean, these are organisms that... These nosocomial pathogens tend not to be virulent enough to cause disease in otherwise healthy people, people like the people living in this room, hopefully. Mm, Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) But once they get out of healthy people into people who are immunocompromised, then, of course, they can start causing much more serious disease. So once you've identified that uh, a person has this particular um, bacteria, I mean, what's the response there? I mean, if it's antibiotic resistant, I I mean, I suppose the hope is that the body would do its job and fight it off but but you know in these 
people who are you know quite seriously ill I'm, I'm assuming that's not the case yes and i think you know looking ahead as the so there's still one or two very weak antibiotics where the these organisms are still sensitive so mm-hmm. they're not right okay. yet at the complete end but there are examples overseas of this organism developing resistance to those as well so once they're fully resistant then you've it's a matter of building the patient's immune system up to the point where they can behave like a normal uh, immunocompetent human and resist the the, the the reasonably weak virulence of many of these organisms. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. We've not just got multi-drug resistant bacteria, we've got extremely multi-drug resistant <laughs> bacteria. That's, a, and that, that's quite scary because where are we at in terms of um, new an- coming up with new antibiotics? Uh, well, I think that's, that's one of the key problems and it's a problem that's been identified by governments overseas, the UK, yeah, the US... More recently, the Australian government's put out a statement on antibiotic resistance. The simple fact is that drug companies are, have to be motivated by profit for their shareholders, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there are many other drugs that they can develop, and it's a competition within a drug company for development uh, rights, if you like. The, the antibiotics, the best antibiotics that we can develop now will not be widely used, paradoxically. Mm-hmm. They will right. be reserved mm-hmm. for those patients that are developing these highly resistant organisms so at the metrics the sort of ph- pharmacology metrics of these things are such that you know if i was a drug company i'd look second at one of these perhaps over some heart medication that's going to be taken every day and i guess it's the kind of thing where um because drugs take so long to get to market it might take you eight years to get a, a drug approved that by that time the bugs have already actually had the time to work out how to get over it so you you spend so much time developing a product which is at the end ineffectual because you've taken so long to develop it that the antibiotics have actually got a, a leg ahead yeah usually with resistances they don't you don't start to see resistance until you drive that resistance by using the antibiotics so often they're effective how long they're effective for depends on how widely they're used or misused. How, how good, Dick, is our understanding of how antibiotics work? Because I always hear about... I hear the term discover and, you know, you know, it's sort of like we didn't design it, we just found it. Mm. I mean, that seems to me like we've been sort of on borrowed time for a while in that we haven't really understood some of the mechanisms. And so just saying, oh, okay, here's a bacteria that's resistant to this, will create something it's not resistant to is a bit out of our wheelhouse. Is that, is that accurate? I think that's right. I think most of the early antibiotics were discovered empirically. There was a golden mm. age from the sort of mm. end of the 40s, 50s, early 60s, where people just tested natural compounds. And mm. as penicillin was discovered as a natural compound of a fungus those natural compounds were found to be effective now people didn't care so much in the early days how they worked they just wanted them to be effective and safe and as we've been through the genomic era and we're now in the post-genomic era we've got a much better understanding of the genes that bacteria have that we don't have as as mammals and therefore can provide that information can provide us with new targets that we can very specifically address using you know modern chemistry and specifically on that now you guys have decoded the genome of this particular superbug so what does that mean in terms of going after it now what what is the next sort of step well one of the things that just say a little bit more about the study it was an international study global study Mm -hmm. led by scientists from all over the world and i think that's a new uh, a new type of activity as well in the old days we would have studied bacteria that were isolated in one hospital or right. a few yep. patients now we're looking at the global picture and you can begin to understand the patterns of evolution much more acutely it was a, a collaboration where everybody contributed strains the sequencing was done in the uk the primary analysis was done at the bio 21 institute in melbourne it's a you know these are really global consortia 
Mm. In doing that research, what we found was that this organism as a species has a massive genome. That is, mm. if you collected up all the genes that were present in this bacteria in all the isolates that we looked at, it has a genome bigger than the human genome. Holy crap. Wow. See, that's just scary. That's scary wow. stuff. Now, the typical bacterium, of course, all have the same, roughly the same size genome. So sam- they have a core, what's called a core genome that all the bacteria in this family have. But then there's an accessory genome, which they sample from. So the really bad ones are the ones that sort of buy the sports pack. Uh, yep. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. they have the genes that make them more virulent mm. in humans. Wow. But this is an organism that is ubiquitous. It's out there in nature. It's on plants. It's everywhere. And so this accessory genome that's so large has probably evolved to allow this organism to adapt to living in many, many, many different environments. So it's like the expansion pack. You know, yeah, you've got the much. genes you've got yeah. and then you can buy your add-ons. And, and, and is it true that they can then share those accessory packs with other bacteria they meet? Absolutely. And that's called horizontal gene transfer, and that's a phenomena that's really associated with pathogens these days, that once one organism gets an advantage... <laughs> and mm. starts to grow, you know, there's an opportunity then for that organism to spread that advantage to other bacteria that are related. Now, when I hear that they all have similar traits, that says mm. to me, though, that they all have similar weaknesses. Does, I mean, is that playing out? Are we finding aspects of its genome that we think we can attack? Yes, and I think that's really the next stage of the research now, is to take the information that is sitting in the core genome and say, well, what's the opportunity here for drug development? How many of these mm. genomes? How many of these genes are shared by mm. humans? How many are, dis- are distinct to the bacterium? What function do they have? Are they essential to the bacterium? Can you get rid of them? If you can't, then they make legitimate antibiotic targets. Mm. Now, the problem with that is that they might be uh, maybe a very specific antibiotic that works beautifully in Klebsiella pneumoniae, but mm. then doesn't hit other bacteria that are Mm. closely related and so again you've got the metrics which look pretty bad to a drug company (laughs) well it's it's scary stuff but it sounds like we're at least heading in the right direction our understanding of the genome is a big part of that and and hopefully that uh, research and as you said 37 different institutions around the world looked at over 300 strains of this this particular bacteria which i think is um is fascinating that this this thing is so prevalent in every bloody uh, they'll find they'll find it under the uh ross ice shelf in antarctica so (laughs) i'm sure um, but it's, uh, it's great to see Melbourne scientists as part of that, you know, essential player yeah. in that global science scene. I mean, we really are doing world-leading research right here. We damn well are. Professor Dick Strugnell from the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Shame. Good luck with that. Um, and, folks, if you're uh, heading into hospital this morning, fear not, should, <laughs> should be fine. Um, <laughs> every time you walk past one of those dispensers, just wash your hands. Well, I think that's bad, doesn't yeah, it? That's actually bad. bad. Yeah, that's bad. That's bad. Don't use those things, folks. I hear it's bad. Have you heard that? Haven't yeah. you heard that? Yeah, oh, apparently yeah, scary. it's uh, yeah, scary stuff. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Cromo will be on in a few weeks. He can talk all about it. But uh, in schools, they're bad. Anyway, but yeah, but wash your hands. Maybe in hospitals, it's okay. Yeah, maybe in hospitals, it's okay. <laughs> There's been all sorts of stuff coming out in recent weeks. Anyway, we uh, have to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking about extreme exercise, folks. It doesn't affect me or Chris KP. But um, if you're one of the people who do it, uh, you'll want to hear this next story. It's very, very intriguing. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Uh, you're listening to a science program, Einstein and Gogo. You're on 3RRR. In the studio, we have Dr. Ricardo Costa, who is from the Department of Nutrition and Dietetics at Monash University. Welcome, Ricardo. How are you going? Good morning. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Look, it's great to have you in here. We, we're going to talk today about your recent work on extreme exercise and how there's a link to blood poisoning. I mean, this, for me, I love this because it just it just puts me off extreme exercise straight away. And I, you know, I don't want to. That was a risk, right? I mean, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, low risk. Um, but I think uh, I mean we all we all know that when we um, well when I say we I don't mean me but when people who are so inclined do some of this extreme activity the body is under great strain. But um, you've been looking at what actually happens in terms of the gut wall and and you know the sort of leakage yes. that can occur there and some of the the damaging stuff that can occur. So talk us through first of all how do you um, how do you define extreme exercise and, and what sort of people fall into the risk of some of these negative effects? So the research that we've previously done has been in ultra-endurance sports and that's considered anything over a marathon. Yep. And normally, in terms of time-wise, anything that's moderate, high intensity, over four hours of exercise. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so... What's happening to the body in that scenario? I mean, you know, I go, I go do a karate class for a couple of hours, and I feel like crap. Um, but the, <laughs> at the end, not the start. But um, I mean, that's, I wouldn't call that extreme exercise. So, what's happening to the body when we're in these sort of so in, heavy in a, conditions? In a classical exercise model, uh, even if it's just half an hour to an hour, what happens? You start moving the body. Body starts to produce energy, heat. Mm-hmm. Your muscles are working, so all the blood flow. Body's very intelligent. Let's get the blood into the muscles because that's where the oxygen nutrition yep. is needed to produce your energy for movement and uh, at, at, at the expense of blood flow to the gut. So you actually get what we have in a, a hyperperfusion or ischemic condition in the gut where there's just no blood flow or no nutrition or oxygen getting in there. Um, and we start to see damage occurring. But at the same time, with those two responses, hyperperfusion and ischemia, the tight junctions of the epithelial cells actually start to open. Okay. And in that situation, we have small uh, bacterial size molecules that can actually get and leach into the bloodstream. Now, that's, that's, this occurs in every exercise model. So, mm-hmm. ju- just going down to the gym, the blood flow going away in, into the muscles, you'll get uh, some ischemia. Uh, in the gut but the problem is if it's very prolonged and the higher the intensity it is the more blood flow will go to the muscles and less to the gut the hotter it is the more blood will go to the periphery and into the muscles get rid of the for, to help with thermoregulation and less into the gut so in other words the more prolonged the more intense the hotter it is the more uh, stress is on the guts the more the damage the more permeability the more blood poisoning and so so when you talk about material leaving the gut and moving into the bloodstream what what sort of stuff are we talking about and how does the body you know we all do exercise so yep. the body must have a mechanism for clearing this oh absolutely so it is uh, it is just uh, the microbiota uh, composition so the bacteria that's naturally in mm-hmm. the gut it's normally at the end of the small intestine so the the ileocalcal uh, junction so there that's where most of the translocation of bacteria occurs, but it could be both your good and bad bacteria, as people know, both of it can, can get. We, in, from experimental model, we just measure the bad stuff, the mm-hmm. endotoxins, because it's just easier to measure. Um, but theoretically, any uh, 
bacterial that has a, a specific molecule size and get through those tight junctions of epithelial lining can get through. The cleanup mechanism is the immune system. Mm. So the body has antibodies, has neutralizing, uh, antitoxin neutralizing capacity, which is, will just bind itself to the bacteria and will just have hepatic washout. The body can just get rid of it. Mm. And so when we're in these sort of more extreme conditions, what's different about that? I mean, I can imagine the, the evolution of this is quite simple. I mean, you know, we always come back to the days on the savannah, you know, you know, lions and tigers and bears, this kind of stuff, and we have to, we have to move fast. We have to get out of the way, but it's it's a very limited in time experience. You know, we may have to run for twenty minutes at yes. most, but we're not going to be running for four hours. No. So, what's different when when we move into that scenario where people are doing this extreme four hours is probably like a quarter marathon, isn't it? It's not even a big one. Um, what, what I mean, what does the body start to do at that point? Right. Um, so that's that's a, a, an easy and both a difficult question because the people that do these races are people that have been training for years have built up into these races and it's more like a personal challenge and part of a lifestyle so ultra endurance sports is someone goes into that lifestyle and that's they, they live for that and along the years of training the body has adapted to this endotoxin response so every time they go and train they're going to have this uh, bacterial leakage into the into the body the immune right. system will strengthen to cope with this increased uh, load so it's what we call the that particular athlete, so that particular ultra-endurance athlete, will become resistant and resilient to the bacterial load and can just wash it out. And we classically see that in our data is we have these, the, the fitter you are the, uh, in our participant cohort, the more distance that they train, the fitter that they were, we see these massive uh, interleukin-10 responses, which is the classical anti-inflammatory response. And other studies have supported greater endotoxin neutralizing capacity in fitter uh, people do more training load. Wow. So you're not only training your muscles and your psychology to deal with these endurance events, you're also training your immune system? Absolutely. Clearly, yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's, cool. so that's why you should always make sure you do a lot of training before you attempt these things, Completely. Right? Yes, that's the whole take-home message is in our studies, no one got hospitalised, but we saw uh, endotoxin and cytokine responses, so literally Sears responses, same to people that were... Um, in, ho- in a hospital setting with septicemia. Wow. But they were fit and healthy. They were fine. They actually went the next day and done another marathon the next day. <laughs> so their body ha- yeah. could cope with washing out the bacterial load that's getting into the bloodstream. But we, we have a lot of people today who say, you know, oh, you know, this month I'm going to do that half marathon. And yeah. they go and they train for two weeks. And, and you know, to be fair, you know, get their fitness a lot better than what it was. This is a very different situation by the sounds of it to what you're talking about. I mean, obviously, you don't train your immune system up in a few weeks for some half marathon. That's the risk right there, where people think, oh, I'm, I'm going to help charity, I'm going to do a marathon, or I'm going to do the two base 56 kilometre and only do one week of training. Hmm. They're the ones that have a risk of both acute injury or acute uh, issues associated with uh, endotoxemia and cytokinemia and the long-term chronic issues with these responses. Mm. Are there there other things that could affect um, whether or not this becomes a problem or not? Obviously, let's assume that I've trained very carefully over a long period of time uh, Mm -hmm. and I've done all the right things. Is there anything else that could, you know, in terms of my immunity or in terms of some other other environmental impact that might make it more likely for this to become problematic? Yes, so the, the, the external external risks or, or factors uh, for an individual. So if they're trained, they're all well, the things we need to be careful of is the ambient temperature uh-huh. and cooling mechanisms. Um, sleep deprivation, there's also a link oh. between sleep deprivation and the uh, endotoxin cytokinemic response being fatal, and that comes in the etiology of heat stroke. Ah. Um, uh, dehydration, 
yep. and uh, poor nutrition. So, and more specifically, a reduction in carbohydrate intake pre and during exercise. Mm. Really? Because carbohydrate pretty much controls a lot of the uh, stress hormone responses and immune responses, especially cytokine responses, to exercise. So the more deprived you are, the less you consume, the higher the stress hormone response, the higher cytokine response, period. So you should carb up before Absolutely, race. clearly. And these crazy uh, um, non-evidential <laughs> dietary regimes <laughs> of yep. low-carb, high-fat, yep. that's a danger and a risk. Mm. Now, now, when you measure things like um, you referred to interleukin-10, this anti-inflammatory agent, is this something that we can artificially produce and put into the body? I mean, are there ways to, you know, I'm not saying shortcut the... Um, the, the uh, but if I was to want to run a marathon in two weeks' time and didn't want to do any training for it, I mean, in, in terms of the sort of protect... I mean, we're talking about protective mechanisms sure. for the body, though. Is it possible to, you know, protect your body yes. um, in that way, not just by eating more well, carbs? theoretically, but... from a ph- pharmaceutical approach, a medical approach, yes, but I'm not in a position to answer that because <laughs> I, I think you'll find that IL-10 does a lot of other things in your body as well. It's, a, it, it, it's generally immunosuppressive. So I think I think, yes. I think what, what this research has shown that the, the fine-tuning and getting the balance right yeah. over time because every mm. person will be very um, different in terms mm. of the way in which their immune system responds. So mm. I don't think a shot in the arm is a... Is a so, sorry, Dr. Yeah. Shane. So, You're not going to be uh, medically prepared to run a marathon that's a next week. Um, or, or physically. Um, <laughs> Ricardo, I, I think, I mean, the message we, we always want to put out there is, you know, a lot of these events and so forth are great for charity. They're important. They generate a lot of income for for very important causes. But I, I suspect the message you're sending home is: be careful here. Train for the prolonged period. Don't just think you can, you know, amp up to this in a couple of weeks' time. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You need to train to the distance. I mean, I'll give you an example. Is I used to be a professional triathlete back racing in the ITU and European triathlon union circuits, and I then moved into the Ironman. When I was growing up as a tra- as a, as a teen in triathlon they always said oh you never train for the distance the Ironman you never do you just uh, you know just train below it and then you get to the race and then you do the Mm. distance well when I became a pro triathlete in the Ironman distance I trained the distance and thus when I got to the race I could just beast it out and do eight hours and a half so Mm. if you're going to do a race you train for the distance you're going to do otherwise don't do it Mm. look good advice Uh, thanks so much for coming in today and and it is interesting and I suppose there are so many scenarios where we see people having very adverse effects of some of these things so if you're going to do it folks make sure you uh, carb up and uh, and train for the train for the long haul and definitely train for the distance if you're going to do these things but they are for good causes dr ricardo costa from the department of nutrition and dietetics at monash university thanks so much thank you very much thank you we're going to take a short break folks and we'll be back in just a moment to talk us uh, more about autism from uh, a colleague down at the murdoch children's research institute you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. We have Molly O'Sullivan in the studio. She's from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute down at the Melbourne Children's Campus. Welcome, Molly. Thank you. Good morning. Now, you're uh, working in an area we've talked about a lot on the show, actually. We've had many guests over the years on the show, and that is autism spectrum disorder. And uh, we might just start by just getting you to give us a quick rundown of what the disorder is and how it manifests itself. Okay, certainly. Um, so, obviously, with our research, we are doing this in children and adolescents, and approximately one 
1.6% of all children have an autism spectrum disorder, or commonly known as ASD. Um, children with ASD have significant problems with repetitive behaviours, including mm. repetitive speech, um, repetitive play and interests, um, obsessions, preoccupations, routines, rituals, the very commonly seen or what mm. people have sort of associate with autism. And naturally these behaviours can interfere with the child's ability to learn and to interact socially and obviously in a meaningful way as well. Mm. Now, you're looking at the moment to do a particular trial on a, on a drug to see if this can have some sort of yes. uh, you know, positive effect on these kids and bring, just bring them back, a, I guess, a notch or two from some of this, this mm-hmm. um, more extreme behaviour. Yes. Um, it's a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Yes. What is that? SSRI for sure. SSRIs, because that title is definitely a mouthful. (laughs) Um, So basically, SSRIs have been widely used for the treatment of repetitive behaviours. It was originally used, obviously, as a antidepressant Mm. medication Um, and how they work they're a synthetic compound that blocks or inhibits the uptake of serotonin within the brain and this medication fluoxetine um, as you said it's been (laughs) there's been a wild ability of they've been associated to use SSRIs um, in treating obsessive compulsive symptoms Mm -hmm. so as you can imagine that from that a lot of those that researched autism took an interest within it so we're we're talking in adults though aren't we I mean, adults, so, so you know, my my, I switch. Sometimes you know, I have to go back and check the light switch a few times. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm getting better at that though, but I think it's because my memory's fading. And I'm forgetting that I even touch the light switch. Um, but, you know, that's that's the sort of behaviour in adults we're talking yes. about, right? Yep, yep. but the, obviously the behaviour is also uh, is seen in children and adolescents mm-hmm. as well. Um, and, but I suppose the big reason why we're doing this study is that it is being increasingly used by a lot of the doctors, a lot of the clinicians are prescribing this medication, but we don't know how safe or how effective it is, which oh. for us... Yeah, that, that must be a huge problem. I mean, you know, so, we're talk, problem. so this is happening around the world, yeah. presumably. People are prescribing this for kids. Mm, this off-label use off-label is what use. it's called. Yep. I mean, how, I, I just wonder about the ethics there and, and you know, how the, how the doctors do that and and not have an evidence base for Do they think it, it works? They do. There's, there's mixed <laughs> bags. Yeah. There's mixed bags. So, and that's obviously the difficulty with treating or even looking with children with autism because the famous or the saying that we always say within the hospitals, if you meet one person with autism, you've met one person. You've met one person, yeah. Um, that is very difficult to blanket treat. Mm. Um, and obviously with this medication, it has been shown to be effective in some forms of the population but not in others. And I suppose part of our research is that we really really want to obviously go back to the basics and first determine, does this work? Mm. Is it safe? Yeah, so let's talk about that. What's involved in working... Well, first of all, what's involved in working out, is it safe? I mean, presumably this is a a drug that's safe in humans. SSRIs have been tested extensively for that aspect? Mm -hmm. They have been tested. So in terms of with our study, obviously when you're doing any clinical trial research, you document what we call the adverse events, Mm -hmm. that we have the parents keep a little diary card um, and just to mark down any any, any changes in behaviour or even some of the obvious things, like if they have a headache. If they get tummy, it's like, you know, a sore tummy, anything like that, because obviously it's an oral liquid, so you need to make sure Mm -hmm. that everything is working um, and you don't want anything to happen, whether it be... 
Yes. And, and how, how easy is that to determine with um, children who are up the extreme end of ASD? It can be quite. Um, it can be very hard because we know that with this medication, one of the side effects is some hyperactivity that the children right. can have, and obviously these children typically display that to begin with. Yeah. Um, and when some of our study participants that were on this, um, when they started the trial, it was out of school. Ho- it was in during school holidays, so there was no routine, no structure, so no structure. Yep. So already their behaviour was a little bit, I suppose, as you said, more on the higher mm-hmm. level. Um, and but all you can really do is rely on the parents. They obviously know their children. They yep. know what their normal behaviour yeah. um, is and you just try to document from that and obviously note if anything were to deviate from that yeah. um, and obviously in terms of the safety is the one part and obviously you want to know if it does work or not and part of that is that we do just these quick psychological tests with the parents just to sort of rate what they feel their child's anxiety is, um, if there's repetitive behaviours, how they've mm. changed from the beginning and obviously at the end of the study. Mm. Now we're going to give out um uh, we're going we're gonna to talk more about this in just a second, but I think mm-hmm. I might just pause at that point and tell people that if you are in this situation where you have a child um, with, with ASD, um, we are going to be calling for people to contact you for the trial because you're looking for participants. Yes, and, yes we are. And we'll tweet, the, um, we'll tweet the details of that and put it on their website, but you're happy for them to email you directly. Yes, certainly. Just, um, so I might just mention that now before yep, we get yep. further into um, it. Obviously, as I said, we are looking for children and adolescents with ASD. We're looking for those with between the ages of 7.5 and 18. Um, obviously, um, they need to be willing to enter a randomised control trial. Mm. Um, and for those that may not be informed, randomised trial means that there's a 50-50 chance whether you'll be on the medication, which in this instance is fluoxetine, or you'll be on the placebo. Mm. Which, um, And obviously, you have to be happy and willing to take the trial. Um, and to contact um, for more information or to contact us, they can um, by read the email, fabtrial, all one word, at mcri.ed. Au. Hmm. I think it's fascinating there that the term placebo in this case is interesting because it's a placebo for the mm. parents, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's the, par- yes. the parents actually yeah. that are doing the reporting yes. um, and won't know either way. So it's, yeah, not it's, actually, always, it's, it's odd to yeah. have a placebo that's not for the patient. It's more for the parents. It is for the parents. And it is very interesting. Obviously, with all clinical trials, people always like to guess whether they think they're on the real deal or mm. not. So we have a lot of very interesting conversations with the parents thinking about how well they think it's working or it may not be working and yeah. obviously trying to... It's, it's quite fascinating, actually. I know I, I was looking into a trial myself recently. I get some migraines every now and then and the doctor I know has this great trial going. And I read that the amount of detail in the trial that the the person has... To, I think you know, if, if you are in the situation where you're going to read that, um, yep. don't be scared off. You do need yes. to talk to the clinicians because it's extremely detailed. I was hurt by the fact that I was too old for the trial. I was outside the range. I was like, oh, it's outrageous. <laughs> Um, first time it's ever happened to me. Um, yeah, only by a first couple of, of years. The first of many. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's actually really interesting looking at how social media is affecting patient mm. behaviour in trials because there's right. been a couple of cases where, especially if the the trial is for a very rare disorder, where all the the families who have have you know this condition may all know each other, and so they're all on the trial and they all compare notes as to who's mm. doing what. And, and right. there've been some instances where through patient support uh, Facebook pages or yep. websites, people have actually been able to sort of start to work out who is on the placebo oh, and who's not, which then starts to, to actually the affect, yeah, affect, affect the trial. The trial. Oh. And there have been some situations
situations where they've had to intervene because the people on the placebo works out they're on the placebo because oh. the trial was going so well. And so, you know, ethically they then, you know, had to put everyone on the actual medication. Yeah. So so it's interesting to see the way social media um, is... Uh, is screw tra- things up. No, but it's also, um, <laughs> it's also helping accelerate um, the, uh, the, patient the recruitment and, yeah, yeah. and the information and the sharing. Yeah. So yeah. I actually think it that uh, it's really um, fascinating to look at the way in which social media mm. is being used now to engage patients and, you know, yeah. recognise that patients are an integral part of the mm. process, not well, just a not just a time point in the experiment. Mm. And that's certainly how we'll be using it here um, to promote this trial. Now, how long will um, the kids be on this? So they're on, on the, the medication for 16 weeks. Mm-hmm. It's 22 weeks in total, the yep. study length. Um, and so they're on the medication, yeah, daily. It's a daily medication yep. um, for 16 weeks. And, and in terms of, I mean, obviously this is being used by, by some doctors without this information. I mean, what sort of effects are some of them seeing in these kids? In the side effects yeah. that they're oh, seeing? No, no, no or actual, just, actual positive oh, effects. Positive, positive effects, effects yeah. as well. Um, Let's not talk about the side effects too much. <laughs> no, some of the positive effects, there's deaths, well, I even personally experienced from mm. one of our participants in our study, yeah, yeah. Um, they noticed that obviously they felt their child, just the levels in concentration, that before mm. that the child obviously very distracted um, and in class couldn't really sit still long enough to even be able to learn and obviously take on what they're being taught. And the mother was just so excited that um, during this trial towards the end, he's like, he can actually write his name yeah. where before he couldn't even do the simple spelling exercises and now he could actually sit concentrate and could take in some some of the learnings um and another sort of aspect was some of these children very quick to to erupt i don't know if that's the correct word to use but obviously in terms of just um their levels whereas some parents have sort of said that now they can kind of reason they can speak to them first before they kind of just offload um so that they were just thankful for those simple things that uh, do you know, I, I can imagine, I mean, I mean be, you know, being a parent who has two kids that, like all parents, complains from time to time about their kids' behaviour that don't have yes. ASD, um, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's hats off to parents who mm-hmm. are living with this condition because it is extraordinary. And I remember recently I asked a, a friend of mine who's in that situation, how do you cope? And, and that person's answer was simple, we don't. Yeah, and I think that's the, that's the reality very of it. Um, you just get by. Molly, thanks so much for coming in. We'll put all the details of the trial up on our, our social Thank media you. sites. Um, I know you, you need about another 46 odd yes. patients, um, which is not a huge number. We hope you get them. Um, Molly O'Sullivan from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, thanks for chatting to us. Thank you for having me here. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much. What a fantastic uh, bunch of guests we it had on today. Been fabulous. It's been delightful. And Chris KP? Yeah, that was good. That was good fun. Yeah. We should do it again. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> we'll next do it again week. next week. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> no pressure, guys. No pressure. Um, getting good guests in can take time. <laughs> and Liv, thanks so much for doing our Twitter feed. Uh, have a great Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will have a great conversation again with you next Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.